The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 19th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. He wants to make millions of Americans go without health care, so they blame the Democrats. That matters. His ill-informed, ill-tempered outbursts complicate delicate relations with the Saudis, Egypt, and Qatar. That matters. But this, from Politico... Donald Trump is the least athletic president in generations. Here's why it matters. It doesn't matter. There are some funny and belittling, well, actually, technically engorging details, but it really doesn't matter. Here's, I like this one. In 1993, journalist Harry Hurt III observed that stress could also affect Trump physically. When faced with financial troubles in Atlantic City, Trump gained weight thanks to a heavy diet of pastrami sandwiches. Donald Trump is in constant and flagrant violation of the emoluments clause. That matters. In fact, let me go down this little uh, cul-de-sac here. It's pretty appalling. Did you know that he's a 5% owner of Starrett City, which is public housing in New York City? So the Trump budget calls for a 29% cut in public housing. But guess what will happen to the program that pays back private landlords of public housing? Barely gets touched. That matters. The fact that the guy 24 years ago overindulged in cured meats does not matter. Sure, mocking Trump gets under his skin, his thin and rapidly expanding skin. But if we are to believe the assertions of that article that his being overweight gets in the way of his cognition or being able to do the job, it's just an insult to anyone with a paunch. By any measure, America's president is overweight and medical experts say it could be affecting his health and job. Yes, yes, it could. But when you get right down to it, isn't his sloth and torpor the greatest guardrail we have against his actually achieving anything? So we want the guy to eat some more kale and get more energy? No, have another burger. Yell at Spicer some more. That's right, Mr. President. You don't want any of your precious energy molecules to leach away. That seems to be what he thinks about health. We have a finite amount of health. And if you work out, your health, healthfulness, health chits will dissipate. The Politico article is filled with examples of presidential rigor, or in the case of pain pill popping JFK, rigor. I do not care. Give me Tip O'Neill and his gin blossom of a nose over George W. Bush in bike shorts any day. This president is a lot of things, and he is a lot of president, as the height and weight charts attest. But this particular brand of demon must be exercised, not aerobicized away. On the show today, I spiel about the Voter Integrity Commission. Of those words, it is a commission. But first, Maria Konnikova is here to analyze handwriting analysis. Is that bullshit? Is that fructifraction? Wait, hold on. What is this? Fact? Oh, I see. Fact or fiction? My handwriting is terrible. Have at it, Maria. Our guest, Maria Konnikova, is the author of The Confidence Game. She is also the host of a podcast called The Grift. Perhaps you've, uh, you know, noticed the similarity between the name of that podcast, this podcast, Total Coincidence. And so maybe, as a result, you think the writing's on the wall when it comes to the gist of Maria Konnikova. Well, the question is, what does the writing tell us? Because we are going to talk about, I believe, Maria, and hello, how are you? 
I'm doing well, Mike. I believe the word is graphology. That is indeed the word, graphology or handwriting analysis. Handwriting analysis. Yes. Well, what are the claims of those who are graphologists? That you could discern personality through writing? Yep. So personality. Mm -hmm. That you can figure out aptitude. So, really? yep, even potentially tell you what business you should go in. Yeah. Um, so kind Look of, at that. Look at those loopy M's. Mason. Yeah, yep, exactly. Your Animal mo- husbandry. Look yes. at the E. Yes. Look at the B. <laughs> Look at the B. Yeah. Well, that would be beekeeper. Or unless it's a weak B. Yeah. Uh, your mood. Right. And also- Merchant marine. Look at the C. Look at the prominent C. And your physical and psychological health. Really? When did graphology, when did that, when was that invented? Well, Confucius says. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, Confucius wrote, (laughs) beware of a man whose writing sways like a reed in the wind. Okay. So clearly we've had people think that somehow handwriting. I think Elton John stole that lyric. I I think so as well. Yes. Um, And maybe the Lion King. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Anyway. So we've got that, but that's not really the the beginning of graphology. That was just a quote that I found, okay. and because Confucius said it, I felt like we had to include it. Um, so in 1622, we've got an Italian dude, uh, Camillo Baldi, who says that you can recognize from a letter the nature and quality of a writer. And so th- that's kind of the nascent idea, but we don't actually have the word graphology until 1875. Yes. Where a French abbot coined the word from graph. Then it kind of takes off. In 1895, there's this other dude, Wilhelm Pryor, who says, it's not handwriting, it's brain writing, because it comes from the The brain. So we actually, we can actually see kind of what your brain is is like by Mm -hmm. how you write. And then in 1930, we have this book that becomes canonical and that kind of founds modern graphology called Handwriting and Character. Yeah. And that's by Ludwig Klages or Klages. I'm not sure how, how to pronounce this. Yeah. Now, now, the fact that so, wacky abbots and uh, the brain guy have these crazy ideas, uh, especially a hundred something years ago, does not surprise <laughs> me, right? Phrenology and skull size and Absolutely. all this now discredited science. Yep. The, the, the wacky thing to me, unless I'm totally wrong, is courts still use it? Yes. There are still experts. Courts this still not, use it. I guess businesses this, still use yeah, it. I guess this has not been. There are forensic disproved. scientists yeah. who say that handwriting analysis is a thing and who specialize it and give testimony in court. People have been convicted based really? on it. But yeah, so it's actually still in use. Okay. Um, so this is not like we're we're not talking about phrenology. We're actually, graphology is something that still exists. There are societies of graphologists in the United States, in the UK, all over the world. You can yeah. train to do this. You get a certification. That doesn't surprise me either. Um, you yep. get a certification in a lot of yes. uh, crypto you, science. You do not need to have a BA, but you can train. But depending on how you spell BA or exactly. how it looks BA, it's exactly. even worth it. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Okay, so, so what you so, do is you get a personality and objectively describe what kind of personality mm, they are through recognized psychological means, self-reporting, mm, whatever, right? Or you could even get criminals or people who clearly right. have done evil things and then show their writing to a so-called expert. Yeah, show, see. Yeah, see, here, here's a priest and here's a uh, axe murderer. Which one's the axe murderer? 
So this is very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, people who believe in handwriting analysis and believe in very weird personality things, um, they're Jungians, um, decided to test this. And these are the last people you'd actually expect to do a double-blind study, but they did. They decided to say, okay, let's give lots and lots of samples um, of people who we've already typed according to our Jungian personality types and Myers-Briggs, which we've already talked about and said is bullshit. But it doesn't matter. like. They what matters have, is they believe right. in it. And what they matters believe they is can that match exactly. it to their faith. Exactly. Yep. So what ended up happening in that study is that um, the handwriting experts were no better than chance yeah. at matching the handwriting to the types. And the experts didn't agree with each other. Yeah. So they actually gave different assessments of everyone's handwriting. So basically the study, this was done last year, um, and the study was by people who really wanted to prove handwriting analysis was accurate. I give them full credit for publishing this and for saying we found nothing. We found that actually it seems like maybe this was not the best idea and ever. if I understand humans, you, they've looked inwards and totally uh, totally reformed the way they do their Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there was a book um, out in 1992 that actually had a ton of evidence that there was basically – no evidence that it worked for business aptitude, for personality, for anything. But that was 1992, and businesses still use it, and people still use it. And when I found out, kind of, I didn't know anything about handwriting analysis, but I started looking at some of the claims, like why, you know, for instance, do they think that an A with an open top is someone who's kind of open and extroverted. Well, it ends up, so remember when we were talking about homeopathy and Mm -hmm. like cures like? Yeah. So there's this uh, element to handwriting analysis that like causes like. So for instance, an open top A is talkative because it's an open letter. Open. And open, exactly. If an I, if you dot it to the right of the stem, you're impatient. Why? Well, think about it. The dot is preceding the... Oh, yeah, it comes first. (laughs) So, so there were things like this, and I actually I found this whole list of things like this. Yeah. Um, here, why don't I pass it to you? You can find some of your favorites. This is written in a font that tells me the dot matrix printer was feeling very insecure that day. Uh-huh. All right, so it's if uh, if there's a slant left versus slant right. Uh, the left would be a cold and secretive slanting handwriting, <laughs> but a warm and extroverted person would be slanting right with their S's. Ay-yay-yay. Heavy versus light. Guess what? The weak-willed person does a light T crossing. The purposeful person does a heavy T crossing. I mean, so many of these... See, these are so much better when you read them. Unbelievable. So many of these seem to be things like an open A is an open personality. Right. What about in languages where those are in homonyms? And and the I to the right, what about in Hebrew? Yeah. Where, I mean, there's yeah, not an so, I, but whatever you dot in Hebrew. Yeah, and what about if you're left-handed versus right-handed? There goes your slantiness. I always so. thought about the handwriting expertise and the analysis was, well, different people are taught differently. And that so... Absolutely. So if you had a bad handwriting teacher in third grade, that means you're... Or secretive and slanty. Yeah. You know, a lot of the evidence has shown that there's a lot of bias in mm-hmm. interpreting personality and things like the Barnum effect, which we've talked about before, which is that basically everyone sees themselves in whatever description you give them. So I can give you a generic personality description and you'll be like, oh, that's me exactly. I'm, rep- so- I'm repressed, irritable, <laughs> self-confident, talkative and sensitive. There you go. There you go. And you have a huge confirmation bias. So let's look at court, which is, I think, one of the places where we should be most worried about handwriting analysis being used if 
there's not much evidence for it. Um, so there was a 2014 study that actually um, had handwriting analysts who are court experts who actually see themselves as forensic scientists. Um, and who testify in court cases. And they had them read um, either a confession by a defendant or not, and then gave them handwriting samples. You mean a confession by someone who did it? Yeah, but this was this this was in a study that yeah. they did not actually put anyone's lives at risk. Oh, good. It okay. was real data, but yeah. taken out of the courtroom. Yeah, yeah. The study so, was well executed, but not well executed. <laughs> exactly. They were much more likely to say that the perpetrator and the defendant, that their handwriting matched if they had read a confession. So this we're not even talking about personality, like, is this a violent criminal? We're talking about, you know, there, this was a sample of writing that ties this person to the crime. Here's our suspect. Here's a sample of the suspect's writing. Is this right. the same person? If they had read a confession, they were much more likely to say that they matched than if they hadn't. And we're talking about the exact same samples. So you confirm kind of what you know. So if you think that this person did it, yeah. you're much more likely to see a match in the handwriting. So why is this allowed in court? I could understand why a court would say, well, you could allow it and then in a cross-examination bring these things up. But why would why would courts actually So allow I'm it? actually not sure because there was a really interesting um, study of wrongful convictions that were overturned by DNA evidence. Yeah. And so the most common wrongful conviction was based on eyewitness testimony, which makes perfect sense because we know that eyewitness testimony is incredibly flawed. But the second most common was forensic scientists. Um, and they were present, their testimony was present in 63% of cases. And it, the handwriting error rates were at about 40%, hmm. which is actually huge. Yeah. Um, you got it wrong almost half the time. Right, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, depending on where, sometimes they were close to 100%. Oh, great. Which is lovely, right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the evidence that this actually works is non-existent. And you can't even often do things like matching handwriting because you're a human interpreting it. Now, there's new, there are new directions with computer interpretations, and there's very little data on this so far because it's new and there really isn't good software in place yet. But presumably, in terms of handwriting matches, a computer would be able to do that much better. It does better. seem, of all so, the things we're talking yeah. about, discerning personality seems impossible. Right, but it exactly. does seem possible that someone who's an expert or some computer yes. could say, same person writing, different person writing, or even the same person trying to cover up for the fact that yep. he's trying to be a different person. Yeah, yeah so... That, and you're holding out that possibility as right. well. Right. To me, to me, that might actually, that makes sense. Yes. Um, we don't actually have a computer program that can do this very, very well right now. But I would not be at all surprised if we had one very soon. Yeah. But I, I think one of the reasons why computers are not actually there yet is think about how long it took to have a pen that would translate accurately onto a screen. It's really hard to do. Yeah. It's people's handwriting. It's hard for a computer to actually interpret a lot of variation, especially if you don't have a lot of input. So I think that might be one of the reasons why we don't see that yet. What are we going to get? But Driverless cars first or handwriting analysis by computer first? Handwriting analysis. All right. That's, that's my prediction. Okay. So we, we have one thing left, which is your physical and emotional state. Oh, yeah. And right, here, so same person changes a little. Maybe. So here actually is a really interesting thing. It turns out that handwriting can be a really good way to see early onset symptoms of certain diseases. So people change the way they write um, when, for instance, um, they are developing psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, and this is because, so there was a study in 2013 about psychosis. So at 
we know that psychosis is often preceded by movement abnormalities, but those can be really, really hard to spot because you have to be trained to see them and you have to observe someone for a really, really long time. And basically, it's really time and labor intensive and difficult and not altogether accurate. But it turns out, so dyskinesia is one of the markers of that. And dyskinesia means that your voluntary movements are abnormal. So when I want to do something, there's something slightly off about that movement that happens because basically your dopamine becomes uptake becomes impaired. And so the study showed that people who were at risk for developing psychosis started showing more disfluent pen movements. So it became a very good proxy for detecting psychosis before you could actually see it. And that's one of the earliest symptoms. So you can actually see some of that in handwriting, Parkinson's. So a lot of times how someone writes, and this has nothing to do with how they form their letters or where they dot their eyes or whether their slant is left or right. Um, it has everything to do with the fluency of the movement and how they're able to write and whether their handwriting is degenerating relative to how they normally write. So that can actually be an early predictor of a lot of different diseases. So we have now, uh, we can do it. Handwriting as a gateway to the soul. Is that bullshit? May we? That is bullshit. That is bullshit. Sorry, French Abbott. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game. She also does the podcast called The Grift, available on the Panoply Network. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. The first meeting of Donald Trump's Voting Integrity Commission went down in Washington today. Kicking things off was the president himself, who once more offered the rationale for this important commission. If any state does not want to share this information, one has to wonder what they're worried about. And I asked the vice president, I asked the commission, what are they worried about? There's something. There always is. This issue is very important to me because throughout the campaign and even after it, people would come up to me and express their concerns about voter inconsistencies and irregularities, which they saw, in some cases having to do with very large numbers of people in certain states. Oh, certain states. Let us investigate. The president a few months ago got more specific about these reports. He cited the, quote, very famous golfer Bernard Langer. And here's how the Times described a meeting when he talked about what Bernard Langer saw. Ahead of and behind Mr. Langer were voters who did not look as if they should be allowed to vote, Mr. Trump said, according to the staff members, but they were nevertheless permitted to cast provisional ballots. The president threw out the names of Latin American countries that the voters might have come from. Langer, a German citizen, is not eligible to vote in the U.S. He was not on a line with other voters, and he described to The Guardian how the story got to the president, quote, I didn't say anything to the president. We never talked. I told a story to a friend and the friend told a story to another friend and another friend and another friend. Somewhere down the line, six people later, somebody knew somebody at the White House and that's how it went, okay? It's kind of weird because you're being talked about without being talked to. Then you read the story and it's not like it's a fact. It's like, oh, I heard this from so-and-so and I have a source that told me this and I have a friend that told me that. 
And therefore, we have a Voting Rights Commission. Here's Jason Kander, who is the chair of the DNC's Voter Rights Commission. He offered his analysis of why the Presidential Commission exists. It started with the biggest lie that a sitting president has ever told when President Trump, at the time President-elect Trump, said that three to five million illegal voters had voted in the election. Now, when he did that, most Americans looked at that and understandably simply saw a deeply insecure human being who was trying to soothe his own ego about his margin of loss in the popular vote. Kander went on to say that the lie has morphed into a commission and this commission is nothing more than a vehicle for voter suppression. Twelve people sit on the commission. It's chaired by Mike Pence and Chris Kobach, who delightedly calls himself the ACLU's worst nightmare. There appear to be, I am going by surnames, appearances, and bios, there appear to be 11 white members of this committee, and no Latinos, even though studies show Latinos and African Americans are disproportionately affected by voter ID laws, of which several members of the commission do favor. One of them is the only African-American on the commission. He's former Ohio Secretary of State, Republican Kent Blackwell. The committee's meeting lasted two hours, 45 minutes, and it wasn't until the two hour, 37 minute point that this issue was raised by Christy McCormick, who is an Obama appointee to the Election Assistance Commission. Uh, and I'd like to look at who is actually being uh, prevented from voting or, or not voting for whatever reason. By the way, the commission that McCormick's on, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, is the sole federal agency that exclusively works to ensure the voting process is secure. And guess what? House Republicans have proposed eliminating it as part of the federal budget cuts. So that's all prologue, because I watched all two hours, 45 minutes. There was a break in between. And I was not. You ready? I wasn't actually totally appalled. Yeah, I see that it could lay the seeds of a whitewash or a cooked up document or a vessel for recommendations that solve a problem that doesn't exist and solve it with a solution that's really just based on a political outcome, like disenfranchising legal voters likely to vote Democrat. But in that room, there was experience, there was civic mindedness, there was more than a touch of homespun wisdom. You know, we have dealt with individuals who were born on a farm. They worked on that farm their whole life, um, did not have a birth certificate, did not have a social security number, and then they had to go somewhere. That was Maine Secretary of State, Democrat Matthew Dunlap. He has seen some voting quirks in his days, but he largely blamed bulk feed. Typically what happens is someone requests an absentee ballot and they may forget about it or lose it in a pile of seed catalogs and then they show up at the polls and we are able to divine pretty quickly that in fact they only cast one ballot and then the question is answered. The commission actually includes several local officials. There was a former Arkansas legislator who says he was shocked to be asked to be on the commission. There was a judge from Alabama. There was West Virginia Wood County Clerk Mark Rhodes, or should I say the late Mark Rhodes. I believe if you check my voter's registration record for the year 2000, you'll find that I voted a provisional ballot. And the reason being was I was deceased. All right, that was corrected. There were three sitting Republican secretaries of state and two conservative think tank members, and they all put forward ideas about purging illegal voters from the rolls. Some of these ideas seemed okay. Here's one. If a person says on a jury form that they can serve on the jury because they're not a citizen, then that person should also be purged from the voting rolls. That seems fine, except if it is incorrectly executed, it could bar legal voters from exercising their franchise. That actually happened with a purge of supposed felons in Florida. 
And there was Judge King from Alabama who seemed like a single issue commissioner. We have to have this money. Counties and states have to have this money. That's just a reality. Whether it's a car, whether it's a voting machine, things are going to go wrong. You need money to fix them. That is a real issue, though. The man who made the best points overall was the longest serving secretary of state in the U.S., Bill Gardner, Democrat of New Hampshire. He served for 40 years and 11 governors. He's seen a lot of ballot access initiatives fail to deliver in the promised uptick in turnout. Gardner says only by stoking the will of the voters can turnout be assured because voters need to know that their votes matter and count. Voting is fragile anyway because so many in this country see their vote as really nothing. And for the first time, going back six, eight presidential elections, after the election, there's a study that I've seen within the last month that when people are asked afterwards, do you feel your vote was counted accurately? Do you feel that the process itself was secure and had integrity? And this is the first presidential election that the number has gone below 50%. This one in 2016. Gardner has strongly disputed Trump's wildest claims, but he really is, and you got the sense that he was a true civil servant and he has a stake in elections. He wants the public to trust them. He has said he's serving on the commission, knowing full well its composition, that he's not turning his back on the commission out of the belief or maybe the hope that if it's done well, it can give citizens confidence in government. Now, I'm not naive. I know a reason why people aren't confident is that the president consciously, during the campaign, blew a hole in the faith upon which the system depends. And I'm not so naive as to think that the commission will take all the commissioner's views into account and actually address the real issues and ignore the fake ones. But remember, the DNC's Jason Kander alleges that the commission is nothing more than a vehicle for voter suppression. But you can see glimmers of why that doesn't have to be the case, why this doesn't have to be a cynical enterprise. Then again, you can also see broad strokes indicating that it probably will be. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, whose looping W indicates that she has iron poor blood. The Gist was also produced by Chris Berube. See the way the B runs right into the E in Berube? Clear sign of neurosis or early onset diphtheria. Hey, you want to know another podcast to listen to? Slate's Culture Gab Fest. I love that podcast. Stephen Metcalf, Dana Stevens, Julia Turner. This week's topics include Baby Driver, which I found out is pronounced baby driver, not baby driver. Or maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Metcalf could have gotten it wrong. Who knows? But also they discuss David Brooks' essay on sandwiches. They're great when they talk about journalists. The Slate Culture Gab Fest. This week's episode is posted. It posts every Wednesday. Check that one out. We should also say the gist is produced by Steve Lichtai, whose strong, bold S and L indicate that he's compensating for having been made to wear feety pajamas until he was 12. The gist with a capital G-I-S-T in big block letters, written in Sharpie. In other words, I huff glue on the side. Oomperu depru depru, and thanks for listening.